Good morning, everyone. It is Thursday, September 14th, 2017. Uh, once again, this is Mike Lyon. We're coming to you live with the Wicked Awesome Boston Sports Podcast. Uh, if you are waking up this morning, it is not a great day if you're a Red Sox fan for a number of reasons, which we will get into. Uh, basic facts first. Red Sox lost last night to the Oakland Athletics 7-3. to uh, That is coupled with the fact that the New York Yankees won against the Tampa Bay Rays. They won 3-2. to two. Uh, That means the lead in the division shrinks back to three games. The magic number remains exactly where it is at 17. Uh, so no movement. In fact, they lose a game in the... In the, in the, uh, so the magic number is 15, excuse me, not 17. It was 17 at the beginning of the week. The magic number is 15. That's where it remains. Uh, so no movement toward the divisional crown. In fact, a step back from the Red Sox. Uh, Doug Fister, I feel like I jinxed him. Um... Fister goes out and just loses the game from the get-go, unfortunately. Gave up four runs in the first inning. That continues a, a troubling trend from him. He's given up run at least a run uh, in the first inning, I think in like four starts in a row at this point. Uh, the difference in this one is he gave up four in the first inning last night instead of one or two. Uh, and then he gave up another two runs in the sixth. He never had it. The, the game was pretty much over from that point on. The Red Sox could never get back into it. Uh, they did scratch out single runs, got a home run from Jackie Bradley, uh, but they were never really in the game. It was, so it's a 7-3 win for Oakland. They play the rubber match tonight. Uh, it is not a stretch to say that this may be the biggest start of Drew Pomerantz's season tonight. And I realize he's been in a lot of big games. I realize he's pitched against the Yankees. Uh, and had big starts against them. I realize there have been probably bigger games against bigger opponents. But the Red Sox need to win this game tonight. And the reason they need to win this game tonight is that they have a much better pitcher on the mound. They're playing at home, and the Yankees are idle. So the Yankees can't make any dents in, any further dents into the, in, into the, 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 the divisional lead tonight. Uh, like I said, they, they can't get a win on the board. Uh... They, 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 so if the Red Sox win, they pick up a half game without doing any work, and they shrink the magic number even more. Obviously, any win shrinks the magic number for the Red Sox, but they need to win this game. It is a they, This is a game that they need to win. Is it a must-win? No. I suppose it's not a must-win. I mean, if they don't win the game tonight, it's not like they're out of the playoff race. It's not like they're out of their divisional race. They'd still lead it by two and a half games. But this really feels like a game that they need to get. It's not a must-win, but it would be awfully nice if they could get it, and it would feel like a huge letdown if they did not. Uh, and for Drew Pomeranz, here's a guy who has pitched generally very well over the course of the year. He's still your number two starter. Uh, your number three starter is now back up for debate after last night. Fister just didn't have it. We'll give him one aberration, but you don't get many more of those down the stretch. Uh, but... This is a very big stretch. It's a very big start for Drew Pomerantz against an inferior team. There's some good hitters on Oakland's club. I didn't realize that. There's actually some pretty good hitters on that team. But it's not a it's it's an it, it, it's an inferior team. It's not the caliber of team that you're going to face in the playoffs. And you need to win this start if you're Drew Pomerantz to start getting on a roll, to start building toward the playoffs and getting momentum. If you're a playoff team at home, you win this game tonight. And particularly so because you go on a road trip after this. You're going down to Tampa Bay for three games. Uh, 
Then you go right to Baltimore for three games, and Baltimore is a team that they've struggled with a little bit this season. They don't traditionally struggle with Baltimore. They have this year. Uh, and you got to go play three in Baltimore early next week, followed by three more in Cincinnati to close the week out. Uh, so you need to get this game, or to close the road trip out, I should say. You got to get this game. You got to win it. You got to have this one in the W in the W column. If they don't win this game, it's going to feel like a huge missed opportunity, and it's going to feel if the if if the Yankees are to come back and win this division, and I don't think they will. I think the Red Sox ultimately are going to win the division. So, I mean, you know, if, if you want to call me Mr. Gloom and Doom because I've, I'm, I'm worried about the Red Sox getting there and, and forecasting this every day, I'm not of that opinion. I think the Red Sox are going to win this division. I think they're the best team in the division. And I think while they've underachieved all season, I still think they've been the best team in the division all season. That's not saying a ton because the rest of the, the, rest of the division hasn't been very consistent. The Yankees have had a pretty good year for what they are. The Yankees have overachieved. They've, they, they've overachieved all season long. That's to their credit. I'm not, don't get me wrong. That's to their credit. And I think you're going to see the Yankees be a force again for several years after this. They've got a good squad. They've got a very good nucleus to build from. Uh, the, I, you know, I think the Yankees are a year ahead of schedule. And for them to be in the playoff picture uh, and, and very likely are going to make the playoffs either as a division winner or a wild card is a credit to them. Uh, but I think the Red Sox are a better team. I think they've been a better team over the course of the entire season. They haven't played their best ball over the course of this year, but I do think they're the best team in the division, and I do think eventually they're going to pull it out. Uh, so don't get me wrong about that. But the divisional race is not over, and it feels like it's far from over. Fifteen, A magic number of 15 seems low when you consider the number of games left in the season. It's not. It's not. It's In fact, it's one of the highest magic numbers any current division leader has. The Cubs might have a, a higher one. I'm not sure what their magic number is in, in the National League Central. But uh, Washington has already clinched their division in the National League East. That has a lot to do. I mean, Washington has played very, very well. In fact, they're within striking distance of the Dodgers because the Dodgers have gone just Dixie over the past month or month or so. Washington has played very, very well, but they were able to clinch the division early because the rest of the division is terrible. The Dodgers' magic number is low to clinch over the Diamondbacks, even though they've gone in the tank just because of how hot they, they began the season over the first 120 games or so. Uh, even Houston, I mean, Cleveland's magic number is almost nil, considering now, you know, if you, if you haven't been paying attention, Cleveland won its 21st game in a row yesterday. Uh, and... They show no signs of letting up. They, they get on top of you early, and if Cleveland gets on top of you early, it's good night, Irene. Their bullpen is too good. And oh, by the way, they're pitching without Andrew Miller. So if Cleveland gets on top of you early, they're going to beat you. But magic number there is low. Even Houston's magic number is, is fairly low in the West. Uh, so when you compare the Red Sox, what the Red Sox have to do to clinch their division uh, to what the rest of the league, the, the league's division leaders have to do, to clinch their divisions, the Red Sox have a lot more work to do. And they have a lot more work to do against a team that is almost certainly going to be in the playoffs, at least in the wild card game in the Yan against the Yankees. Uh, and they have to do it. I mean, with they, they, they get the game tonight against Oakland, then nine in a row on the road before six in a row at home to finish it up. So you're playing nine of the remaining 15 games on the road if you're the Red Sox. It's not a terribly difficult stretch. You know, you get Tampa Bay over the weekend. Baltimore is 
you know, like I said, they've struggled against Baltimore this season, but their their record is right around 500, a little lower than that. Cincinnati is not a good baseball team. They can't pitch, but you got to play them in their ballpark where you know they can hit. So there is some work left to be done if you're the Red Sox. And tonight's game, like I said, against an inferior opponent at home with your number two starter on the hill, you've got to win that game. Drew Pomerantz has to come through, pitch well, pitch fairly deep in the game. You need six or seven, in, six or seven innings out of him tonight because you pitched a lot of innings with your bullpen last night. You need six or seven good innings from Pomerantz tonight, and you need to win the game. The bats need to show up. They need to swing. they got to score some runs. So it's not a must-win. I'm not calling it a must-win game. I'm not giving up on the Red Sox if they lose this. But it sure feels like a, a game that they ought to win, and it sure feels like a game that they should get. And if they don't get it, they're going to call it a very, very big missed opportunity. So watch to see what happens at Fenway tonight. Uh, the Red Sox will be a prohibitive favorite in the game behind Drew Pomeranz, who's pitched well at home in general. Uh, but, but watch to see what they do, because this is a game that they really ought to get. Uh, and in the grand scheme of things, over the course of the rest of the season, it's a game that they really need. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't cover the biggest story of the game last night. And if you're just waking up, if, you, if, you, if you're opening the Globe, or you're opening ESPN or the Boston Sports Journal or Deadspin or, or virtually any other sports publication, you saw that the big story of last night's game was that a banner was uh, unfurled, I guess is the right term, over the Green Monster. Uh, midway through the game, I think it was in like the third or fourth inning for a little while, there was a banner that said, racism is as American as baseball. And it was quickly confiscated. Security came over, kicked the people who unfurled the banner out of the game, got rid of the banner. Uh, I don't believe anybody was arrested, but that's neither here nor there. That's not really why we're here to talk about this. As of the time of this podcast, I don't believe it's been confirmed as to who is responsible or for what groups or what the motivations were for unfurling the banner, which was quite ambiguous and can be taken in a number of different ways. There were, there were rumors, uh, I think Pete Abraham posted, he's a beat writer for the Boston Globe, he posted on Facebook that there were some rumors that a local anti-fascist group took responsibility for the banner. That was later disproven. And there were some other rumors that one of the, the individuals responsible for the banner was inspired by the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, which would seem to indicate that the purpose of the banner was not out-and-out out racist. There wasn't a bunch of white supremacists or racists that were un unleashing this banner on Fenway Park, proclaiming how racist they are. Rather, it would seem, if that is to be taken as true, that the purpose of the banner was to bring attention to... Uh, the, the problem of racism in the United States of America and to put a national spotlight on it in perhaps the most famous of all ballparks in the United States in a big game. So pur purpose of the banner and, and message behind the banner aside, uh, like I said, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about this. And quite frankly, I, I don't know where to begin. I have a lot of different thoughts running through my head they might seem inconsistent or incoherent, but I'll just kind of rattle them off, and, and hopefully they might make a little bit of sense at the end. I'll start by saying the, the choice to unleash this banner in Fenway Park was not an accident. 
I, I don't know this for a fact, but I, it's my strong belief that it wasn't an accident. It would be very, very naive and very, very short-sighted, to say the least, to say that the Boston sports scene and the Boston sports environment and teams have not had a problem with racism in the past. And it would be very short-sighted to say that the city of Boston has not had a problem with racism in the past. I'll leave that there. But there, I'm not going to go back and give specific examples of, of, of things. I think the, the racist past of the city, and certainly in sports, is evident. And certainly among Red Sox fans is evident. Having said that, I also do not believe, as many would have you think, that Boston is a racist city. And that New England is a racist region. I... Look, I, I, I am a... I'm not a... I'm sorry, I'm trying to struggle for the right words to say this, but... I'm not someone who could be the victim of racism. I'm a, a, a Caucasian male, grew up middle class to upper middle class. I live in the suburbs of Philadelphia. I lived and was lucky to live a, a very good life growing up with a strong family and a strong support network around me in Springfield, Massachusetts. I'm not someone who could ever be the victim of racism. And if you've ever been the victim of racism, then I, I sympathize with you. And I, I, I'm appalled and I'm shocked that you've had to deal with that. Uh, I can never put myself in your place and I wouldn't try to because I'm never going to be the victim of racism. And if you've been the victim of, of racism in Boston, and I don't deny that it is that there have been racist incidents. There was one earlier this year for Adam Jones, which was appalling and shocking and terrible. If you've been the victim of a racist incident in Boston, my heart goes out to you and I apologize on behalf of the entire city for you. But I'm also not of the collective belief that the Boston sports fandom or, or the, 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 the general Boston sports fan is a racist sports fan. And I say this while recognizing fully that there have been multiple incidents of racism throughout Boston sports history, which again, are shocking, which are appalling, and which are terrible. But I think the city, and I say this as someone who doesn't live in New England anymore, uh, and, and who never lived in Boston to begin with, this, with you know, even Boston proper, uh, or, or Boston, the surrounding environment. I, I grew up in Western Massachusetts. I grew up a Boston sports fan. I identify with the city and I identify with New England uh, to this day and I always will. But I have many friends that live there of many different races in Boston who believe it to be a great town, a town full of opportunity, a city full of good people with great things to do with terrific establishments that are not racist in nature. And I don't believe that the Red Sox or the Celtics or the Bruins or the Patriots tolerate racism in any way, shape, or form as, an or as organizations. I believe most of them are on the forefront Could we t of, of, of combating racism. Could they do more? Sure. I'm sure they could. But I think these are organizations, when you compare them to an awful lot of organizations in professional sports, that are ahead of the curve when it comes to racism as a whole. And 
again, could they do more? I'm certain they could. Uh, I'm certain somebody listening to this podcast could give me several programs, several initiatives, several things that any of those teams could say or do that they're not doing now that would go a long way toward combating racism in and around the Boston area, in and around the United States that they're not doing now. And if those programs would work and would help, I'm all for them and they should do them. And we as a community should do them. And that brings me to my last point. Again, while believing that the average Boston sports fan is not racist and while believing that Boston is a, is not a racist sports town, it would behoove all of us fans to recognize that it still exists there. Each of us, when we go to these types of games, and, and whether it be a Red Sox game, a Patriots game, Celtics, Bruins, whatever the case may be, each of us has to remember that these things, unfortunately, in 2017, as hard as it is to believe, do happen. And when they happen, we've got a responsibility. If we believe ourselves not to be racists, we've got a responsibility. We've got a responsibility to do one of several things at, a val at, an, at an absolute minimum. We've got a responsibility if someone near us is acting in a racist, just ridiculous racist or offensive manner, to say to that person to calm down and cut it out. We've got a responsibility to go get security or go get somebody if somebody feels threatened around us or could feel threatened around us and tell them to stop it. Most of all, we've got a responsibility to educate our families and our friends and tell them that this kind of thing just can't happen and it's not to be tolerated. And it's not to be ever even condoned, considered, joked about, or, or, or God forbid acted upon by our kids, by our loved ones, by our parents, by our friends. That's the thing that we can do as fans. Step up, take charge of yourselves, tell people to knock it off, go get security, and educate the people around you as to why these people, these racist acts are out of line. You want banners like what happened last night to stop? Do your part to cut it out. I don't care if you're in Boston or Seattle or Hawaii or New Mexico. I don't care where you are in the United States. Take heed of that. If you see something racist or offensive going on around you, stop it. Take some actions to stop it from happening now and take some actions to stop it from happening in the future. That's how you stop seeing banners like the one you saw last night. If you can do your effort and do your part to try to get rid of racist attitudes around sports, then do it. That's all I'm going to say about that at this point. So with that being said, let's move on to your football team. And first injury report comes out yesterday, and it's not a good one um, for the Patriots fan. Danny Amendola didn't practice yesterday. Dante Hightower didn't practice yesterday. Uh, neither is a good sign for their availability on Sunday. You're a little more optimistic about Hightower than you are about Amendola. Uh, they could just be giving Hightower a break from practicing, knowing that, you know, let's, let's, let's save the wear and tear on his knee uh, and the wear and tear on him personally for the, over the course of a full season. Uh, maybe the knee's good to go. They're just giving him a little bit, give it a little bit of, giving it a little bit of rest before the game on Sunday. That's certainly a possibility. Amendola is far more difficult to imagine seeing him playing on Sunday. 
him not practicing yesterday suggests to me that he's still in the concussion protocol uh, and probably is not going to be out of it by the time Saturday hits, or Sunday hits, excuse me. You'll know more uh, about you know the, the exact level of whether these guys are good to go on Friday when the uh, the official injury reports get released with uh, out doubtful, questionable, and probable designations. Uh, but at least early on, it's not looking great for either Amendola or Hightower. Hightower is the bigger question mark. The real surprise, or I guess the, the, the if there is a surprise, is that Devin McCourty landed on the injury report too. Uh, McCourty has a groin. He was limited in practice uh, with the groin injury. It's not known, obviously, at this point, the extent of that injury. He must have suffered it during the Kansas City game. I'm pretty sure he went wire to wire in that game anyway. Uh, but if you lose McCourty in Hightower, oh boy. I wonder what that defense is going to look like on Sunday. So it's it's an ominous-looking injury report. It is just the first injury report. Uh, nothing is obviously set in stone for these guys' availability on Sunday in New Orleans. Uh, but it is an ominous report. You'd much rather go into New Orleans healthier than they are. They got, I mean, they got really banged up in the game against Kansas City. Not just with Hightower and Amendola. I mean, they had a bunch of guys with, who were who were nicked up. And Kansas City didn't obviously didn't escape that game unscathed either. There just seemed like there were injuries all over the place. <clears throat> Whether you know serious ones like Eric Berry, unfortunately suffering the torn Achilles, to nicks and, and and bruises and sprains like what Hightower had, to concussions to what Amendola had, just seemed like there were a ton of them. And, the Patriots are going to have to manage this. Uh, the motto over there, obviously, is next man up. and They've dealt with injuries before and come through. If you haven't seen, the Patriots are a really big favorite this weekend against New Orleans. And obviously, that didn't mean anything in the first game. Uh, they were anywhere between an 8.5 and a 9-point favorite against the Chiefs. And the Chiefs obviously blew them out. Uh, but... Vegas really likes the Patriots this weekend. You can tell. Six-and-a-half-point favorite in New Orleans. I don't know if that's more of a reflection on the Patriots or it is the, the, the Saints. The Saints did not look good at all on Monday night against uh, a Minnesota team, which, quite frankly, didn't look all that great either, but still was able to win the game you know, pretty handily. Uh, Brandon Cooks, it's a nice story for him. He gets to go back to New Orleans in Week 2. Uh, a place where he had some success and uh, probably didn't necessarily want to be traded out of there. I think he's enjoying his situation now in New England, but he gets to go back to New Orleans in week two, probably gets a nice hand from the fans down there, so it'll be a nice scene for him. Uh, but we'll see how practice continues this week. Uh, no enormous stories coming out of Patriots camp other than the injuries. We will keep tabs on it and bring you anything as it arises tomorrow. We will obviously preview the game in full and give us a, give a prediction on it uh, based on what, what we're seeing. Uh, but keep your eye on the Patriots. Keep your eye on the injury report. That's going to be key for them. So with the last little bit of time we have here, let's talk Bruins again for a second. <clears throat> and training camp, I didn't realize that training camp, the official training camp opened this late in hockey. The, the players have been working out for a while beforehand. Uh, I'm sure, and, and either formally or informally. But the official opening of Bruins training camp is today. If you can, it's fun to get over there. Uh, it's just fun. I think it's just fun to watch hockey practices in general. They're usually pretty fast-paced. They, they go through some good drills, and 
uh, if, the, if anything's open to the public, and, and I haven't seen whether any of the practices are going to be open to the public, they generally are uh, in the Boston area, go over there and check it out. It'll be fun. Um, but they play their first preseason game on Monday against Montreal in Quebec. And that seems like a pretty quick turnaround to me. Uh, you start training camp on Thursday, you get four days of training camp, and then you got to go play a game on Monday. It just seems like a pretty quick turnaround. But that's what it is. I mean, in, in hockey, I think you, you got to you, you kind of practice by playing anyway. The preseason feels like it means more in hockey and, and maybe baseball than any other sport. Basketball, you're just playing a couple games to go through the motions. Um, I mean, these guys don't play hard at all in basketball. Um, football means even less, and the only the the literal only thing you're trying to do in NFL preseason is get through it unscathed and get through it uninjured. Uh, and of course, the Patriots, unfortunately, were not able to do that this year with Edelman going down. But hockey, to me, feels like it's a little bit more important than it is in any other sport. You got guys maybe who are playing together for the first time. You generally know what your roster is going to be going into the season. Maybe you're making a couple cuts here and there. Uh, but the guys who do get cut go down to Providence. Again, in general, you might cut a couple of veterans who are in camp for tryouts. But the younger guys who are there know that they got to come up through the, pro through the ranks of Providence anyway. Um, you, so you, you generally know what your roster is going to be. You're, you're, you're just trying, if you're the coaches, different line combinations, different defensive pairings to see who plays well with each other, to see what you want to start the season with. Um, and, and you want to get guys used to how they, you know, how they work off of each other, how they skate, how they get to the puck, where they like the puck, uh, things like that. Uh, the game is generally at a faster pace. I mean, basketball, you can slow the game way down if you want to. You know, you, you, you can generally just kind of do whatever you want on offense in the preseason. You know exactly what you're going to be in, in the regular season anyway. Uh, football, like I said, you're, you're just going through the motions. Baseball, it, it's big for the pitchers to get them stretched out. Uh, the hitters get back to facing live pitching again. So, uh, it, you know, I, I would put it, I would say hockey, then baseball. Uh, maybe reverse order, uh, or where, where preseason is the number is, is in terms of how important preseason is uh, and exhibition games are. I'd go hockey and baseball probably one and two. If you want to go baseball one, hockey two, I wouldn't argue with you. Uh, but I would definitely put the two of them way ahead of, of basketball and football in terms of preseason. Um, but one interesting thing to point out, I, I know I mentioned Joe McDonald the other day. He's writing for Boston Sports Journal. Used to be the Bruins beat writer for ESPNBoston.com. Now he's doing it for the Boston Sports Journal. Uh, came out with a nice little camp preview uh, article this morning. Uh, preview the Bruins camp, what you can expect, uh, what he likes in terms of, of the different lines, uh, what he thinks of the defensive pairings and the goalie situation. And really quickly, the point I want to bring up is what he said about the goaltending situation behind Tuka Rask. Obviously, there's no question who your number one goalie is. You've got one of the best in the league in Tuka. He's still young. He's playing on a new contract. Um, and there's no question who your number one is. But McDonald makes a pretty good point. Rask played 65 games last season in the regular season. And that doesn't seem like a ton, you know, compared to an 85, or excuse me, 82-game season. You know, 65 out of 82 games, what's that, 80% of the games maybe? 
80, you know, 80, maybe even 90%, but he had a, he had a good, a good talk and, and Bruce Cassidy made a good point, And that's that we got to have a better backup goaltender situation uh, because most starters only play about 55 games. And that's where we want to have Tuca. And he brought up a really good stat on Anton Hudobin, who many expect is going to be the backup goalie again. You could see Malcolm Subban, Zane McIntyre get some looks. Both of them are still young. Both of them are probably going to start the season in Providence. Uh, but certainly either one of them could see some big time uh, as, as the backup to Tuca. Hudobin ended the year with a flourish. Ended the year with, I think, six in a row. Six wins in a row in the games that he started. But he started very, very poorly. He started one and one. I think it was one six and one was the stat on Hudobin. And what that did was it caused him to fall out of favor with Claude Julien. And Julien went to Tuca more and more and more and more. And before you knew it, to, I mean, it was it was kind of assumed, I guess, in the article. I mean, they didn't interview Tuca, so they didn't. I'm sure Tuca would never say this, but it was certainly implied that the wear and tear over the course of playing all that time had to affect Tuca to some extent. And it would explain why he wasn't as effective as he might normally be against Ottawa in the playoffs. Now, I don't think the, the, the Bruins were going to win that series no matter what. I think Ottawa was the better team. It was a close series. A couple of those games could have gone either way. I think in the end, the right team won. I think Ottawa had better legs. I think they were a better team overall, top to bottom, than the Bruins were. They certainly had the best player on the ice in Eric Carlson. Uh, so I don't think it, whether Tuca was fresher or not, I mean, maybe he could have gone on a better run than he did and stolen a couple of these games. But uh, Tuca's not the reason they lost the series. They, they lost to a better team last year. But in any event, the point was made that they need to get Tuca some more rest this season than they have in the past. And you got to like that kind of point from, from Cassidy. I mean, you, you, over the course of a long season... I mean, 82 games is an awful lot for someone to be on the ice. And, and, you know, you think to yourself, well, he's a goalie. He just stands in the net. and You know, he doesn't skate all that often. He doesn't. He has to play the puck every once in a while. He's just standing in the net. Well, I don't think there's as mentally tough a position in, in, in hockey as the goalie. You know, there, people forget that there's a mental aspect to this game, too, to every game. And, you know, whereas other players skate, they react to what they see. They don't have to think. They obviously have to think. Don't get me wrong. But they don't think as much as a goalie does. I mean, a goalie's got to be engaged at every second of every game. they got to know where their skates are. they got to know where to play. they got to know how far out to come out of their crease. they got to know what side of the goal to, 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 to tend. they got to position themselves for every single face-off. There's just a lot to think about when you're a goaltender. So... Before you jump on the, well, it's okay if he plays a ton because he's just a goalie. I mean, it's not physically taxing on him the way it is defensemen or forwards or anything like that. Well, think about the mental fatigue that it causes you. And think about how crazy it is to stand in goal for, for that amount of time. I mean, it, it's not so much physically fatiguing as it is mentally fatiguing. So uh, the point of the article, and there's several good points, I, I encourage you to, to bring it up. So again, not a, not a real long article, but Joe McDonald just does a really good job as the, as the Bruins beat writer. Uh, so check it out if you can. Um, but the point of the article is, look, the, the, they're looking for more consistency out of the backup goaltending position. Uh, they they want to make sure they get the backup goalies, whoever they may be, 
uh, about 25 to 30 starts this season. I mean, if they're on Tuca for 55, then that would mean the backup goalie gets 27. So that's a good number of starts that they want to give a backup goalie this year. Uh, and Cassidy is depending on some more consistency uh, as a way to, 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 to help the team and help the team along and, and save Tuca's mind and legs for the playoffs and, and hopefully get them some more wins. So uh, I bring the article up again for that point. I bring the article up again to push Joe McDonald. I know I pushed him here before, but uh, I just think he's, you know, for, for a sport that often is fourth in, in the line of coverage in Boston, uh, I think he does a very, very nice job recapping the Bruins and previewing players and giving his thoughts and, and you know, in and around the game. Uh, check him out if you can. I, I can't push him enough. So that's our show today, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, tomorrow we may have, unfortunately, an abbreviated show. We're going to try to get some, some more time in uh, to talk a little bit more about the Patriots. We'll do a full Patriots uh, review in the morning and, and give a prediction on the game. Uh, I just have a, a shorter commute than normal tomorrow. I've got to be somewhere out of the office in the morning. So my commute is, is not as long, and i got an early morning meeting, so I don't have as much time to podcast tomorrow morning. But we'll do as much as we can in that short time. If we have time after the meeting uh, to do a little bit more and add to the show, we'll certainly do that. But at a minimum, we will preview the Patriots game, give a prediction on it, set you up for the weekend series against Tampa, and try to set you up for the weekend series against Tampa Bay. Uh, and talk about the how the game last the, the the big game against Oakland tonight went for the Red Sox. We'll try to get that all all that in in the time that we have. For now, that is the podcast for today. Have a great day, everyone, wherever you are, and uh, we will see you tomorrow. Bye bye.